0: Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Acts 15. We're going to be starting in verse 36. Uh, We're continuing, uh, obviously, our our series in Acts, and uh, we're seeing how the gospel is going forward to the ends of the earth. And one of the things as this is happening, is when we think about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, explosive growth, right? The gospel going forward, the spirit of God on the move, all these things. We we immediately start to have a certain picture in our head of how that happens. And and I don't know about you, but I tend to think of that kind of like a highlight reel, right? Like everything's always like the perfect conversation and people are weeping and and everything's just kind of up and better and better. And there's never kind of the, you know, like a highlight reel never has like the turnovers. It never just has the mundane thing of just dribbling the ball up the court, right? Never has any of that. Uh, And so often when we think about how does God... How how does God work through the church to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? We tend to think that it's just kind of like one highlight after a highlight. But the fact is that often God uses our fumbling words. God uses our conflict. God uses unexpected turns in our life to accomplish his purposes. In fact, God often uses what looks like weakness, not what looks like power, not what looks like a highlight. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. He's talking about putting these words and Jesus giving these words to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God often uses our weakness to accomplish great things. And, and that's what's going to happen today in Acts. As we go into this next part of Acts, what's gonna, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. This is, this is the part you would think they would leave out. Uh, because we're going to see some conflict, and we're going to see um, some suffering, and we're going to see some closing of doors. And, and that's what we're going to see today, that in fact, through these things, often is how God works most powerfully. How God works most powerfully. What we normally think as a way that God would never work, something that we would never do, uh, a route that we would never take, is often the one that God uses. And so this morning, the big theme is, God works most powerfully in the least expected ways. God often works most powerfully in the least expected ways. We're going to look at that specifically in this passage, three unexpected ways. One is our personal conflict. The second is our suffering. And then the third is when doors are closed. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in we often have a, a plan in our own mind. We have a way in our own heart. But as Proverbs says, while a man plans way in his heart, you establish his steps. Lord, we ask that this morning you would help us to see how beautiful that truth is. To help us see how you use our weakness. And in our weakness, your power is perfected. You, are, you put yourself on display, your glory on display through us. And Lord, you accomplish far more than we ever could have imagined or planned. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to see in the midst of our conflict, in the midst of closing doors in our life, in the midst of of suffering, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see how you work powerfully in the midst of these things and accomplish far more than we could ever expect. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul and Barnabas... What's interesting is Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. And what begins here is what's called the second missionary journey, right? There's the first, then there's the second. And so they're getting ready to head out on the second missionary journey. And the way it starts is this way. Paul says in verse 36, let us return. He turns to Barnabas and he says, I have an idea. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are so what paul says is what they've essentially done i'm going to do it from your viewpoint i know you're not supposed to turn your back on the crowd but i'm going to do it so they they went kind of like on a map like this and around back to jerusalem and now he says let's go back and they're going to head back this way and so they're going to head back and they're going to kind of go in reverse order and they're going to visit all the churches that they just saw god start since chapter 13 and when they go through they're going to encourage them and they're going to make see how they're doing they're going to just check in on them but then there's a problem There's a problem. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take them with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so what happens is they agree on the mission. They agree what they're going to do, but they don't agree on the team. They don't agree on the team. Now, why don't they agree on John Mark? I'm going to call him John Mark. Mark is John called Mark. People call them different things. So let's just call them, I'm going to call them probably John Mark throughout. We'll see what comes out. It's something in there. It's in that constellation. Uh, but John Mark had been helpful back in chapter 13 in planting the church starting back in Cyprus, which was kind of that big island off in the Mediterranean Sea. And it says there in chapter 13, I think it's around verse 4, that, that John Mark was extremely helpful as they planted that church. And that was right at the beginning of the first missionary journey. And so he helped them establish that. But then it said after they left Cyprus, it says that he had withdrawn. The NIV, a different translation. So I'm using the ESV. It says withdrawn. The NIV translation says that he deserted them. You feel that difference? That he actually actively had deserted them. That in their hour of need, he left them high and dry. And he left them. And we don't know why he left them, right? We we. Uh, What's interesting is Luke, the author of Acts, he doesn't say why. He doesn't clarify why. He doesn't say, you know, maybe he was uncomfortable, right? Maybe he didn't like the food on the journey. Maybe his parents coddled him a bit too much. Maybe it's a combo of all of them. We don't exactly know why he left them, but it seems that what matters is the fact that he withdrew, he deserted the team. And so Paul has a legitimate concern, right? Paul has a legitimate concern that now, remember, this is the ancient world. This isn't like us now. We pack up a Winnebago and we drive around the country. And if somebody, like, falls asleep and doesn't take their turn driving, you're like, oh, that's annoying. But what happens is if you take somebody in the ancient world, they're eating your food, they are doing all this, and they become a drain on the team, this could actually completely devastate the trip, right? And so Paul seems to have a, a legitimate concern. Barnabas, though, however, wants to give Mark another chance. It seems that Barnabas wants Mark to go with him. He wants to give them another chance. See, uh, Barnabas was actually, we know, I, I think it's from Colossians 4, that Barnabas is Mark's cousin. So one, there's a familial tie there. But then also, and you, probably he's known him since he was a little kid, but then also Barnabas is known throughout Acts. If you remember, he's known as the encourager. He's known as the one who thinks, thinks the best of people. And he's, he's probably, in the midst of this, he's, he's probably almost resenting Paul's refusal to give Mark a second chance. And so what's happening here is there are two different visions. There's a mission here, but at the end of the day, Paul is saying, I'm focused on that mission. And, and Barnabas says, well, there's a mission within the mission, which is to build up Mark and to see him flourish. And there are odds with that. And it says that it results in a sharp disagreement. In Verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And so they go their separate ways. And this sharp disagreement in the Greek, it's essentially like violent emotion. This isn't just kind of like, they're like, "Uh, I don't know, what do you think? I want to go this way. Well, I kind of want to go this way. Okay, I guess I'll go this way. Right? Like, that's not what's going on. This is violent. This is conflict. This is conflict. Real conflict. And they go their separate ways. Now, I think what's interesting... (laughs) As we read this, uh, uh, first I have to say I think we are, unfortunately, all too familiar with this, especially in the church. That this is something that, when we read this, probably for some of us, it brings up memories of of times when we say, "Hey, I, I actually left the church. I kind of went away from the church because of exactly this thing." We don't like situations like this for a reason. Oftentimes, they become ugly. Oftentimes, this is what causes people to walk away from the faith. So the the interesting thing, though, is that Luke still includes it in the story. Think about that. Luke includes this story about the two giants of the book of Acts coming head to head, having conflict. And he doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He, he could have easily, he's, he's writing the history of this. He could have just said, like, people are like, hey, well, didn't something happen? I heard a rumor, right, that something ha- went down with, like, with Paul and Barnabas. A- but I don't see anything in your narrative. And it's, it's like, looks like, oh, oh, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here, right? He could have easily done that. But he didn't. Why? Why? Why is this included? Because it's not going to have some nice, and we'll see how God works for it, but there's not going to have some nice, tidy, like, then it says that they hugged, and they made up, and they're like, actually, you know what, let's just keep going together. That doesn't happen. In fact, Barnabas is going to kind of disappear off the pages of Acts from this point. Well, I think the reason why it's included is actually very simple, which is the fact that we, even in spite of how godly people, Christians, are going to have conflict. They are going to have conflict. Conflict is a part of pursuing God's kingdom and being on mission with one another. And so Luke is saying, I don't want to sweep it under the rug because then it's easy to read this and just get the highlights. It's like when I was a kid, I would watch like this. There's like this highlight reel of Michael Jordan. I was like like four foot ten and pudgy. And, like I, and I remember I like I'd watch this highlight reel of Michael Jordan, and he's dunking, and it's like this Patti LaBelle music in the background. Some of you are already known Patti LaBelle. good stuff. And so this Patti LaBelle music is going, and he's like flying through the air, and I'm watching. I'm like, oh. And then I go outside, and I get a basketball, and I'm like, I'm Michael Jordan, right? And I had my brother take pictures of it, and I thought it was going to be amazing. It was going to look like a basketball card. And then I saw it, and I'm like this far above the ground, right? And I'm like sweating, and I'm straining, and I'm not going anywhere. And I was like, What, I mean, what happened was the highlight reel set me up for failure. Where in my mind, it's like, that's what it looks like. And I'm just going to go out there. I don't see all the hours of blood, sweat, and tears. I don't see the whole Michael Jordan failed his junior year or sophomore year, didn't make the basketball team. I don't hear any of that. And what Luke says is you need to see this is a part of life in a fallen world. God is bringing his kingdom, but this is a part of life. And so he wants to include this. Paul and Barnabas were united as possible. They had a deep love for the mission of God. They have a deep love for the kingdom of God. And they were an unbelievably perfect team for one another. Paul had the intellect, Barnabas was good relationally. You could say that they were soul brothers. Before this, this, this happened, they probably would have thought in their mind and pictured that they would have thought that the only thing that was going to separate them eventually was their death for the sake of the gospel. And yet they find themselves here. Even the best united Christians who love one another often find themselves in conflict and often intensely disagree. And Luke includes this because he's saying, if you are going to follow Christ, if you are going to be on the mission of God, if you're not just going to armchair quarterback it from your mom's basement on a blog, you are actually going to encounter this. And so we need this picture of what happens. It's not a question of if, but when. And when it happens, instead of fighting against one another, we have to fight for the bigger mission of God. And that's exactly what we see in these two men. Instead of turning and fighting against one another, they instead fight for the mission of God. Because here's the thing, while we can't avoid conflict, we can control how we respond to conflict. Once uh, I was in a situation like this, the other person had it all wrong. I had it all right. It was a different situation. But I was in conflict. Just kidding. No. (laughs) It was just a very similar situation. And I had a mentor who said to me, I remember this, in conflict, worry less about going through conflict and focus more on going, growing through conflict. Matt, are you focused more on just going through the conflict? Are you focused more just on going through it and getting your way of of your reputation, how it reflects on you? Are you thinking about that? Are you concerned about growing through the conflict? He gave me, he called it the ABC of spiritual growth. Adversity builds character. ABC, get that? Adversity builds character. And often, conflict with others provides an opportunity to glorify God and learn new muscles and grow in maturity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, my question there is, is included in the all? Paul says, All you do, everything you do, do it all to the glory of God. And I think often what we think is, Okay, it's all, everything good, but when I encounter conflict, I'm going to go my way, and I'm not going to be so concerned about the glory of God, but just about getting back and protecting myself. But conflict is included in all. Even when we encounter conflict, disagreement, Paul's words apply. And he goes on to say in verse 33, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What he's saying there is, I'm not looking just to my own advantage. I'm not just looking to myself, but I'm looking, I'm thinking, who's this affecting? How is this, how is this, of impacting the kingdom of God, who are the people who are seeing this around me? One of the, so the question becomes, okay, so what, what do we do when we encounter this? So I want to give you four steps to think through, four questions, or four step, uh, four. I don't know what they're called, four details, things you can do, four steps. And then I'm going to give you uh, a warning, I could say. So four G's of peacemaking. This comes from Peacemaker Ministries. Uh, you can look up Peacemaker uh, Ministries, probably on Amazon. You can find a lot of good stuff. They've had different books, peacemaking for families, for marriages. It's actually really good gospel-centered stuff. But the first one is glorify God, as I, we just saw in Paul's words. Ask, how can I please God in this situation? When we are in conflict, when you feel that desire, you know, like, this, this has been intense, I just should say, convicting for me in preparing this week. Because I know when these situations come up, the last thing I want to do is glorify God. I'm concerned about my own glory, if I'm honest. But we have to ask, how can I glorify God in the midst of this? How is God glorifying himself? Then second, get the log out of your own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? See, one of the things is just to acknowledge, we always have to be willing to look at it. Okay, I am not snow white pure. We, we know this. We know this as Christians, that even our most our good r- acts are filthy rags before the Lord. We know that we, our sin corrupts and it pollutes and it stains things. And so what, what, be willing to look at the log in your own eye. What have I brought to this? The next, gently restore. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? So this is where you go, and this is coming from, I think it's Galatians, what, 6-2? And it says to gently restore the brother. It doesn't say to shame them and just kind of make them, like, reluctantly bring them back in. It says gently restore them because you have a Christ who came gently and lowly to save you. And lastly, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to This conflict. This is Matthew eighteen. This is the reality of we're called to pursue one another. When we ran from God, he ran towards us. And when we run from one another in our conflicts, he says, go towards one another. It doesn't mean that they might, like Paul and Barnabas, have to go separate ways. It doesn't mean that there might be collateral damage or there might be consequences of what happened. But we have to go and pursue it for nothing else, so that bitterness doesn't put a root deep down in our soul and just. Kill everything else. So notice Paul and Barnabas, they don't lob bombs at one another. Right? Like often we, we, it's like, I'm out of here. And it's like, as you're leaving, you're like, boom, right? Like on social media, or you're saying, you're sending texts, you're saying things to people on your way out. You're just blowing things up, blowing up bridges. Barnabas also doesn't come back. Remember, Barnabas sold. Think about this. Barnabas sold his house, his field, in order everything, his land his inheritance, his retirement plan. He gave it to the church, all his money, all his riches for the sake of this. And he doesn't try to leverage that to manipulate Paul to do his thing. Doesn't do that either. None of that is here. There's disagreement, they're clear on it. And they don't jump to claiming they can see into one another's heart and what sin is going on. And if you can, I think we often see this and we read it through our own eyes and the things, situations we've unfortunately seen, and we, we think this is just like the violent, kind of like they just go at it with one another and just angry and they just walk up. My guess is that this was incredibly humbling and heartbreaking for both of them. My guess is that this is the most painful thing they've encountered in the book of Acts, more painful than the stonings, more painful than the words that have been said about them. But they wanted to keep God's mission before more prioritize it above their own pride. And we should do likewise. You know, we have to be very careful about this. By the way, this first point's a little bit longer. The other two are shorter. We have to be very careful about this dynamic. Because this is something that happens all the time. We're always working through this. You could say you're either exiting a season of conflict, you're in a season of conflict or you're entering a season of conflict right so welcome to reality <laughs> like this is this is a this is something that is just clear and, and i remember another thing the same mentor had said to me once he gave me an african proverb he said they said matt let me give you an african proverb this is what it is when the elephants fight the grass gets trampled when the elephants fight the grass gets trampled when we fight and we decide to lock horns we decide to go after one another what happens is while we feel like we have been able to burn off our anger we know cathartically how it feels it feels good we feel righteous but what happens is actually as we fight we trample everyone around us who watches and that's why it's so deadly in the church when we don't do everything we can to pursue one another in the midst of conflict. Because, by the way, this is not the norm. Paul's, this isn't a prescription. Like, hey, if you ever have conflict, go your separate ways. That's what the book of Acts says. That's not, it's, it's just describing it. I think this is actually the exception that proves the rule, that we're supposed to normally, pr- we're supposed to pursue one another, and it's an extreme situation when you go your separate ways. But one of the ways that this often Comes up in the church, and I, I've used this for years. I've used it in my own life because it's been incredibly helpful. It's a simple tool that I want to share with you. I'm going to call it the let's call it the uh, unloving, or the unloving triangle. I'm trying to play off love triangle. It's called it the unloving triangle. This is often what happens in our conflict. Some of you might be aware of this if you do counseling. Uh, this is a simple tool. We often, in our conflict, we take on the identity of I'm the victim. I'm the one who's really, I'm, being, I'm not being heard here. I'm the one who's being, uh, who's being hurt here. I'm like Barnabas. I'm, I'm the one who, Paul, you're not listening to me, and I resent you because how could you not love Mark enough? And so I'm, I'm all the things that come out. And in our conflict, what happens is we often take on that mindset. And what we do is then we look at the person that we're in conflict against as the perpetrator. And so what we do is we, we think in our minds, and, and we know how this goes. You're, you're not like, well, you know, there's this and this and this, but let me give them the benefit of the doubt. That never comes in, right? It's 100% bad, 110% bad because they're satanic, right? And so we, tend to, we say, I'm the victim here, 100% right. They are bad, 100% wrong. And this is where it gets nasty. We all know that, but here's the hidden dynamic we often miss is that what we normally do, and listen, this is so important in the church, and I'm going to share with you, I have done this, and God has graciously revealed where this is in my heart, because this is a way to get a cheap gospel with a cheap Savior that does you no good. What we do is we turn as the victim, and we go to someone else, and we pull them into the situation, and what we say to them is, can you believe that person? Let me, let me just tell you what they did. But you know what? This is what the victim says to, to the hero. I know that you understand me. I know that you really get it. I know that you see what they don't see. And what we do, this is called triangulation. What we do often in our conflicts is we create, we take on the victim mentality, we then paint the other person as only a perpetrator. Notice that's not at all what Paul and Barnabas do here. We paint the other person as a perpetrator. And then what we do is we pull in the other person and we do it in such a way so that it makes us feel good. And the thing is, often we're pulled in as the hero because it's flattering. But here's the thing. It's a cheap way of earning that, that sense of approval and that sense of righteousness and that sense of, oh, you're so right and you're so good. And what it does is it burns down families and churches and communities. This is, you could say, the gospel according to Satan. Find your salvation in this world through pseudo-saviors. Paint with broad brushstrokes and never paint yourself anywhere near the perpetrator. See what Scripture says in some ways. I could unpack this for an hour. I won't, obviously, but... Jesus is the ultimate hero we need. But Jesus is the hero who also takes the place of the perpetrator. And Jesus, so Jesus is also the perpetrator. And Jesus is also actually the victim. It's his holiness, it's his righteousness, it's his creation that we spoil. His people who are hurting. We do better to run to Christ to wrestle with our hearts, to wrestle with them. And yes, I know this is not easy. And yes, this is tears and this is pain. And again, there might be things that need to be restitution. There might need to be consequences. This isn't cheap. But what I'm telling you is this is not the path to healing. And so we must be careful to break that triangle. This will be natural break it. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They broke it, and it saved the church. Because look at verse 41. It says, the churches are strengthened. Imagine that. Like, all of a sudden, we get this conflict, and then it says, and then the churches are strengthened through conflict. Can you imagine that? Imagine the last time you read something on Twitter or whatnot, there was like, there was conflict in my church, and guess what? The church was strengthened. Why? Because these men decided to follow the Lord, not to form a triangle, but to go straight to Jesus and say, we're about his kingdom. And guess what? Whatever else is there, it's in the Lord's hands and we trust his sovereignty. And so what happens is they actually both make the right decision. We're going to see this is how God works in powerful ways in the ways we least expect it, even in the midst of our conflict. Because what happens is Paul is going to go and he is going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we're going to see in a minute and be only because of this, and he's going to be able to go forward, but also at this, so he made the right decision, but also at the same time, this is what's crazy, Mark is going to go with Barnabas, and even though he kind of disappears off the, the pages of scripture, and they don't recount the kind of historical story of it, but what happens is he surfaces later in Colossians 4, and Paul acknowledges Mark as a valuable coworker years later. He affirms his usefulness in ministry in 2 Timothy. Twice in Paul's letters, he says, I love Mark. He's grown up. He's matured. He's become a man of God. And now he's incredibly important to this mission. In other words, what Barnabas did also was right, and it brought healing, and it developed Mark, while also Paul was able to pursue both those kingdom visions were able to be fulfilled. And it's not only that with Mark, also, do you know that Mark is one who also authored the gospel of Mark? This is what Derek Thomas says. He says, what was John Mark's greatest accomplishment? The writing of the gospel of Mark. It's this man, this failure, this deserter, this quitter, this man who deserted in the hour of need, and that's the man God chose to write the gospel of Mark. God, when we are willing to be weak and admit our brokenness, our sin, God's power is perfected in us, and he uses it in ways we cannot foresee when we worry about less about going through conflict and focus more on growing through conflict when we turn and cling to god not to our own pride god perfects his power in our weakness god works most powerfully in the least expected ways in conflict in our personal conflicts but also next in suffering this one's a little bit quicker in suffering because of paul's boldness he has encountered a ton of suffering we've read this in the series beatings, stonings. And just a few chapters ago, Paul is stoned in a city called Lystra. So back in chapter 14, Paul is stoned in a city called Lystra. I think that was, what, three weeks ago, this sermon? And you can imagine that since then, the struggle that Paul probably had they had seen that the church seemed to be going forward, but you can imagine that Paul had, he struggled when he walked away from that, taking that beating where it's like, his, God, how are you at work? God, how, how, what did you really accomplish there? God, when I walk away from that and I'm just hurting and I'm in pain and, and I'm not sure what happened, why did you send me there, God? Why did you put me in that situation, God? And perhaps you've, you probably have not been stoned physically. 2020, but you may have experienced that kind of suffering socially, emotionally, for the sake of the gospel. I know this fall, I've had several conversations with different students, just as one example of how difficult it has become being able, just, just purely not bowing the knee to say yes to certain things in their classes and the pressure that's coming and the way they're suffering academically, with the relationships with students and just emotionally, spiritually. It's easy to believe in the face of that kind of suffering. It's better just to be quiet, to just disappear. But that's why, and and to wonder in the midst of that, how in the world could God possibly be at work? It just feels like all weakness, all failure, no power, no glory, no fruit. And that's why this next verse is actually very encouraging. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. Remember, Lystra was where Paul was stoned. He's going back. Remember, they're going back to the churches. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So what's happened is since Paul was there, all of a sudden now there's a new believer. And here's why this is important. Because most likely Timothy came to Christ by seeing Paul being stoned. That most likely the gospel that Timothy got was he saw that a man said there is something worth more than my life. And he laid it down. And Timothy saw that. He said, I want that. Just as Paul stood at the side of Stephen as he was stoned and he came to Christ. In the same way now, Timothy stands at the side of Paul and he sees him stoned and he comes to Christ. Paul's suffering, he could never, he could never fathom how God was at work. Timothy is going to become Paul's partner for the rest of his life in ministry. He says he calls him a son in the faith. He could never have foreseen this. And in fact, what God is doing here is in the midst of Paul trusting him, in the midst of trusting him in his conflict and not blowing up his ministry, in the midst of trusting him in his suffering, now he says, I'm giving you another, a mark more suited for you. Here's the thing, you can never underestimate the powerful witness of suffering well for Christ and the ways that God will use it in your life and through you and others' lives. You never know who's watching. And sometimes it's not just what you say, but it's how you do it. To suffer for something that's worth more than anything else in this world. Power made perfect in weakness. And so, when you face suffering, trust God. He is at work in your weakness. Lastly, the last unexpected way, when doors are closed. When doors are closed. I had a little bit more on that point, but I'll skip it for the sake of time. I want to go over. But when doors are closed, Paul had set out with a plan. It was a good plan, right? We've gone around. We've seen all these churches planted. Now we're going to go back. It was a good plan he was going in reverse to strengthen the churches but here's the thing Paul had a good plan but God had a better plan starting in verse 6 and they went through the region of uh, Phrygia sometimes you can hear where I can't pronounce words well and Galatia having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia and when they had come up from Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul, what happens here is Paul attempts to go north. He was trying to just go back through the path he had just carved, and he attempts to go north, but then something stops him. It's kind of mysterious in both ways. It says something just stopped him and won't let him go. Now, scholars do sometimes debate. They think that this might have been actually Paul got ill, really ill. Um, and the reason for that is because when we get down to verse 10, all of a sudden it switches from they, they, they to us. In other words, Luke now is in incorporating him in the, himself in the story. And Luke, we know historically, was a physician. So some think that at this point, what might have happened was Paul got extremely ill. Luke was brought in as a physician to join them. And that's actually why originally Luke joined them was at that point, because this is the point when we see him enter the narrative. Um, So for some reason, that happens. And then they attempted from that, then they attempt to go south. But then it says that the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them. And so there's kind of, Paul just has this foreboding feeling that he shouldn't go there, that the Spirit's guiding him and saying no and shutting doors. And so he's forced west. It's almost like he goes, and then eventually he's like, well, I guess the only way to go is west. And so he heads west to Troas. And then when he gets there, Paul is given a vision to head further west into Macedonia. The results of Paul doing this, you can imagine along the way how frustrating this is. You can imagine, like, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a planner, okay? So I'm a planner person. I don't know if some of you are planners. I do not like interruptions. I don't like it when things don't go my way. But often the way that God works is he, he guides us exactly by interrupting our best laid plans. And what happens, the results are massive. It's hard to understand. Like kind of like we don't have Christianity here in the West if Paul doesn't do this kind of massive consequences. Not like little consequence, like huge. Because what happens here is there's no plan for the gospel to go towards Rome, to go way West, to go to what Acts would call the ends of the earth. But Paul here, or God here, is pushing Paul by closing doors so he would go there. Through this, when it goes westward, right after this, we're going to see churches planted in Philippi. Ever heard of the book of Philippians? We're going to see a church planted in Thessalonica. Ever heard of first and second Thessalonians? We're going to then see a church planted in Corinth. Have you ever heard of first and second Corinthians? We're going to see churches planted in most of the New Testament churches that they're writing letters to are going to be the churches that are planted after this point. And if Paul doesn't If God doesn't close doors for Paul and Paul doesn't walk through the doors that he opens, none of it happens. Paul had a good plan, but God had a better plan. Now, we could easily read this and go, well, that sounds pretty fantastical. And uh, uh, a vision of a man talking to him and God's spirit leading him. That happened with the apostles, but not us, right? But here's the thing. The truth is God does exactly this in our lives. God does exactly this in our lives. He guides our lives in the same way. The question is not if God is guiding us. The question is, will we go the easy way or the hard way? (laughs) Will we go the easy way or the hard way? One of uh, often, again, God interrupts things. He does things that guide us. And often we go through our life thinking I have a plan and I'm focused on my plan. That's my framework for my day. This is me sharing myself. Maybe you can resonate with this and i go through my day like this and then what happens is something comes into my life to interrupt it and i just see that as a complete interruption and i see it as something that someone else did or something this stupid laptop right or something that just happens or my car broke down what does this happen and now i'm talking to this person and i'm just like why am i standing here and it's like maybe you're here for a reason maybe this is happening for a reason One of I remember this really hit me. I was reading. There's an old theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and uh, he wrote when he was younger these resolutions, resolutions for his life, resolved kind of like New Year's resolutions. But he actually kept them. Uh, and so when he had this resolution, they said, "I will never lash out at an inanimate object, because to do so would be to lash out at the sovereign hand of God." Now here's what he meant by that: I will never lash out like when when something on my laptop crashes when my car breaks down, when something happens in my life, I get angry and I beat the dashboard, right? And we do that. Uh, right? And why is this happening right now? And all we're focused on is I had a plan, God. What is happening? And Edward says, don't at that point lash out at, because you're not lashing out that object. What you don't see is the hidden hand of God behind it is what you're actually lashing out at. When that happens, as believers, we, should, we, should, we know God is sovereign. He's providential over all the things in our life. Nothing happens by accident. And so when these things happen, we should stop for a moment. and consider. It, it doesn't mean that you don't have these moments where you're like, you know, you're gonna struggle with patience. It's not, it's not like all of a sudden you're like, you know, just this saint where you're like, your car breaks down and you're like, I am at peace with this, right? Like, yes, we're, but that's part of the process. God says, let me get a hold of your heart, whatever's in there, to learn to trust me. And so that you do, over time, come to this place when you experience things like that, where you're like, this is happening, and it's not the end of the world. It's okay, and somehow I know that God is at work in this. I don't know how, but I have Peace. See, it's easy to think and, can, and think when God also closes doors in our lives. Doors on jobs, potential jobs. That major, that move, that relationship. It's easy to think when God closes the door. God, if I just had that thing. If I just had that thing, then that thing would satisfy me. That thing would be enough. And then, Lord, then I'd be good. But, Lord, if I just had that and sometimes just slow down and realize, like, he doesn't hand you a stone or a snake. If you are in Jesus Christ, God's will for you is for you to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. And what he is doing is he is working in your life. He's saying, I have something better. Trust me. Take my hand. I've closed the door. Let the door be closed. Don't bang on the door. Don't just try to jimmy rig the door. Don't try to blow open the door. Just trust me and know I've shut this door because I'm your heavenly father. And you may not know what the future holds, but you can know who holds it. And I hold it. Perhaps when God is closing a door, he is guiding you, like Paul. Sometimes we make this so super spiritual. Like we're walking around like with a honing, like, oh, okay, the spirit guide me. Like we, we, we play all these games, and here's the thing. God, God is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. But then also we do, we should every day, we should just start God. Guide me throughout our days. Spirit, guide me. Spirit, where are you guiding me? Spirit, give me discernment and whether this conversation, should I go there, should I go there? Like just throughout the day, you are probably living with such a low-grade anxiety about what you should do next. Just ask the Lord. Lord, guide me. Guide me. Just a simple prayer. I remember this, this story kind of landing the plane here in closing. When I struggled with this, I struggled with this a ton when I was younger like just anxious all the time, and so I was over-planning for everything, and, but at the time I actually didn't really know how to plan, so it was just kind of a mess. And so what was happening was all the time I was just living this anxiety. And I remember at the end of my senior year of college, when, you know, you're supposed to like be going off into the big, big wide world, right, and, and conquering and doing whatever people say. And so I'm at that point, and I feel that, and I, I thought I was doing this internship, and I was getting ready, and, and what happened was God closed the door on it. He canceled it. And I ended up then sitting there for like a day, like, just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And there was something else. He shut that job down. It was like, what? I felt hemmed in. And then the only path I had, and I felt God saying to go on this summer trip. It was like this stateside mission trip. And so I felt God telling me, go there, go there, go there. And so I finally was like, "Uh, I have to raise all this money. How Money was raised like that. It was crazy how God, and I got there. And I remember the first night falling asleep and being still like, God, why am I here? Why am I here? Here's no lie, and this isn't how everything in life goes, okay, but no lie, the next morning, the very first person I I, uh, met and ran into was now my wife, the woman who became my wife, from California, and I was from Ohio, and we were in New Jersey, okay, couldn't, didn't plan that one, right, by the end of the summer, I did not, I was forced to teach, do this, I told him I didn't want to, I don't do teaching, I don't, I, I'm, I'm actually getting out of that. That's not what I want to do. And they forced me to do it. By the end of the summer with working with the local pastor, I felt God was calling me to ministry. From God closed doors, and I just walked through the doors that he left open. And as I walked through them and trusted him, and I didn't just kind of blow things up as I went, but I just, okay, Lord, and seeking him and seeking him. And what happened, I mean, for me, I guess I got a wife and a calling out of one summer, which is great. That, that doesn't always happen. But at the same time, <laughs> how God worked in the midst of that, he, trust him. I could go on and on and on. I feel like my life is again and again and again. And I've learned to pray and go to this Proverbs Proverbs sixteen nine again and again. Um, the, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I, I, I probably, If I've talked to some of you, I've said that verse. I, all the time I come back to that. Lord, I have a way in my heart, yes, but establish my steps. Close doors, open doors. Pray that prayer. Seek God's guidance. Pray, submit to his will. Where God guides you, he will provide. And while we may fail, he will never fail us, nor will he abandon us. We can trust him. Because while we may not know what the future holds, he, we know the one who holds it. And he not only holds you, he will guide you by his spirit. So trust God to do most, his most powerful work in the most unexpected ways. In your personal conflicts, in the midst of suffering, when doors are shut. Because his power is made perfect in your weakness let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these truths. Lord, navigating life and all the complexities of life is, it's overwhelming to us. But Lord, you are good. You guide us. You shepherd us. You you are gracious. And Lord, you do mighty things through the the things that seem broken, that seem overwhelming, that seem like they almost shouldn't happen. Lord, when we think of the perfect day, Lord, you come in and you allow the unperfect day to happen. And Lord, you work through that. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to turn to you in our conflict, to give our hearts to you, to give those relationships to you. Help us to turn to you in the midst of suffering, Lord, to trust you, to demonstrate our allegiance to you, to find our hope in you in something that's far above anything in this world and let that witness be powerful. And Lord, guide us. Close doors and open doors. Lord, it is better that we would be with you in Troas and be perplexed than that we would be far from you and within our own will. We love you, Lord. Guide us. Amen.